0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. And now on with the show. My guest today, Christine McDivitt Tompkins, made history earlier this year when she completed what is said to be the largest ever transfer of land from a private entity to a government. In a ceremony in Chile with President Michelle Bachelet at her side, Christine McDivitt Tompkins formally handed over 1 million acres of land, while President Bachelet designated 9 million more acres to create a vast new national park system. Combined, the areas of protected wilderness created through this partnership is about the size of Switzerland. That ceremony was the culmination of decades of work by Christine and her late husband, Doug Tompkins. Christine was the longtime CEO of the Patagonia Outdoor Apparel Company. Doug, who died in a kayaking accident in 2015, was the co-founder of the clothing companies North Face and Espirit. Together, they created the nonprofit Tompkins Conservation. And in this conversation, Christine Tompkins discusses the origins of her work as a conservationist and as a pioneer of corporate social responsibility. She also describes the process of creating wilderness areas in partnerships with governments. And we caught up while she was in New York to receive an award from the United Nations Environment Programme. This is a great conversation. I personally find the model of philanthropy that Christine McDivitt Tompkins and her late husband created to be really innovative and interesting. And I was very glad to have the chance to learn a bit more about it and uh, more about her. And I think you'll enjoy this episode. As always, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, feel free to send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to the website to peruse our archives. And don't hesitate to reach out to me to suggest people I should interview or topics I should cover. All right, now here is my conversation with Christine McDivitt Tompkins. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: They sent a representative to Chile to talk to me about the possibility of becoming, let's see, the United Nations patron for global protected areas. And we spoke at length, and I agreed that that would be a nice recognition for Tompkins Conservation, and that I wasn't quite sure how we could be helpful. But if we can be, then then we would be, because that's our interest in conservation wherever it is.
0: Uh, and sort of, what are some of your like roles and responsibilities uh, as the, in this uh, in this endeavor?
1: Well, I think that's being worked out now. I think that um, they're thinking about how we can be helpful um, in Latin America, but I think everywhere, and how to use our experience to guide others, especially in public-private opportunities for conservation. But how, how I will work with them is definitely... Trying to be figured out now. I don't. I don't think there is a. There's not a program built yet.
0: Are there um, sort of opportunities to replicate the kind of model that you helped pioneer in in South America and in other parts of the world?
1: Well, every country is different, so it can serve as a model for public private efforts but it's not to say that they'll this model these models would always work in every other country because every country is different their legislation their the setup politically their is there state ownership of land is there you know every country is different so i hope so but and, and then certainly in some cases it is but not all
0: so it, like a lot of it depends on like the political circumstances of uh, of the country
1: sure as in anything it does but it also depends on the concept of land in in a particular country and how is as i said is there state ownership of land versus privately held land and so anyway it's always different well, and of uh, course uh, that, you have to respect that
0: what do you mean by the concept of, of land, like how like land ownership rights exist, or, or if at all?
1: Exactly. Uh, in some countries, uh, land cannot be owned by a foreigner. In some countries, the state actually owns, China owns the land. So, of course, generally speaking, there is private and public land being held, but that isn't always the case. That's all I'm saying.
0: I I want to go back and and learn a bit about sort of the moments that led up to your appointment um in this role by by UNEP. Um but before we do, can you just sort of take me back to that moment in January of 2018 when you and uh Michelle Bachelet signed that agreement turning over uh something like a, a million acres of, of land to the government of of Chile?
1: Well, this was a this was a a culmination of of an idea that my husband Doug hatched twenty five years ago. So uh, for the members of the Tompkins Conservation Teams, it was it was a big big day. It was the last million acres of our land to be donated, and it, and the leverage the, the governmental contribution of nine point three million additional acres to create five new national parks and enlarge three others in one shot was extraordinary. And within that donation were our, two of our three biggest emblematic parks, Patagonia Park and Pumalin. So it no, that was, that was a very big day. Yeah. <laughs> we worked very hard to get to that point. And actually, as did
0: the government and I want to spend the bulk of of this conversation sort of learning the moments that led up to that because I think that will be something that's really interesting to to my audience, um, how you sort of turn land that was privately owned over to uh, a national government as part of a, a giant conservation effort um, but before we get there i'd love to learn a little bit more about the roots of of your Uh, sort of commitment and and interest in these issues. And so I'd just love to learn a little bit more about you uh, personally and how you got involved both in Patagonia and in conservation efforts more more broadly. So uh, I suppose, where did this all begin? Where are you from? Where were you born?
1: I was born in Santa Paula, California, a little ag town, not too far from Santa Barbara. And I met Yvonne Melinda Shenard when I was very young and started working for Yvonne before Patagonia Company was started. Um, Where did you but meet him? Then, oh, I met him on the beach and out in front of our family's beach house when I was 15. He was probably 28 years old. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> 53, let's see, 53 years ago, something like that. Anyway. And so when I finished my studies, I started working for him full time. And a couple of years later, he decided he wanted to start making clothing for for all of us, climbers, skiers, and and kayakers. And that's how Patagonia got started. And then I uh, was the CEO of that for, out of the 24 years, 13, 14, 15 years of that, I was the CEO. And then... When I turned forty, forty, I retired when I was forty-three, and mm-hmm. went with Doug Tompkins, my husband, um, to to the Southern Cone to start these projects.
0: So, so can I ask, while you were um, CEO of of Patagonia, um, mm-hmm. it seemed that the the. Um, the company was sort of a pioneer in corporate social responsibility at a time where I suppose that was not like a, a much talked about buzzword. Um,
1: yeah, I think the Chenard family, both Evo and Melinda, were absolutely the pioneers, not just some of the pioneers, but the pioneers in that bringing ethics and moral standards. And I don't mean religious, I mean, let's just call them ethics into corporate life. There's yeah. no question in my mind about that.
0: Well, so so I, what, I, what I'm i interested in learning is how you sort of developed the sort of mechanisms of corporate ethics when there really was no sort of model from which to, to draw. Can you maybe just like tell well, me I some think stories? It's like, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I think it's like anything. If you're strong enough and clear enough about those things you believe in, Regardless of what you're doing with your life, whether you're starting a business or you're starting a family or anything else, then your ethics will apply to those activities. So, And that's what they did.
0: So maybe you can like walk me through because I, I really don't know much about this this industry, but like what's the conventional way of say making like a, a pair of pants and like the Patagonia way of making a pair of pants in like the, you know, nineteen eighties, mid nineteen eighties, late eighties while while you guys were pioneering this stuff?
1: Well, I think in those days there wasn't the understanding about the the effects of the materials going into pants and so on and the zippers and the buttons and so on, but that's radically changed, especially in the last um, 15 years, maybe a little longer, that everything matters. Patagonia has done an enormous amount of work, as have other uh, companies, that's for sure, on figuring out how things are made, what are they made of, how do you mitigate and, in some cases, eliminate the need to um, put put toxins into the ground through production materials. And there are, there's an army of people in Patagonia who that's what they work on every day, and it's imbued into the designers, it's imbued into almost everything the company does. In fact, it is everything. So it was an evolution of as you begin to know and understand what's going on then you have a responsibility to act on it and and it has it doesn't mean that the company doesn't make mistakes and you know all sorts of things but the intention and the and the the action whether it's fair trade all the way through what zippers are made of what what all the way through is pretty Extraordinary in its uh, emphasis on reducing its net harm to the planet. As you
0: were growing this this company, I mean, was there ever this kind of trade-off between sort of sustainability and, and ethics, as, as you defined it, and, and growth?
1: No, because the Chenard family growth was never the issue. The issue was always build the best product and create as little harm as possible and let that, if there was growth, it would be natural growth. There was never, still to this day, a push to grow. That yeah. was never the point.
0: And yet it's a fantastically large company and, like, beloved.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. by today's standards, it's yeah. not fantastically large, but it's large for what we thought it would ever become.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I live in Denver. Everyone here is uh, a Patagonia, oh, yeah. no, a Patagonia person. Right. Yeah. Uh, um uh, yeah no we've like little but by
1: by today's standards for us it's huge for for any other measure it's not that big but yes it's grown a lot
0: so so what uh why did you end up leaving the the company after basically helping to to build it i moved to
1: I, i i i i was moved to retire because i wanted to go do something else i was Doug and I were a couple by then and we decided to head out and work in conservation. That's exactly why I retired.
0: Well, so so that actually brings me to to my next question. You know, of of all like the kind of environmental issues, I'm interested to learn why conservation is the one that resonated most deeply with you. I mean, there could have been a number of causes from like, you know, clean energy to to other kind of, you know, important environmental causes. Well, we're not
1: engineers for one thing. Okay. And we love land. We You know, we were ski racers and climbers and surfers and boaters. And, you know, we are from the kind of nature tradition, that tribe. So it wasn't unusual that that we would choose the protection of wild nature as one of our goals. But it wasn't our only goal, but one of them
0: so so in the early nineties you and and uh your late husband doug moved to uh to South America how did you well of... we
1: were based down there okay. we, we yeah we were never we never we were never residents down there, but that's where our work we we lived wherever our work was we bounced around a lot
0: and how did you sort of begin the process of Uh, sort of acquiring the land and sort of hatching this this plan to to just sort of acquire land for conservation
1: well that doug really got it started and he was he bought a large tract of land and realized that um it was possible to do so and to make parks and then he began to think about the possibility of donating them to make national parks. And very soon, I mean, like all things in life, you get going sort of organically. And then uh, before you know it, you're on your way.
0: Uh, So uh, how did you and Doug meet?
1: Oh, I met him through Yvonne. They were climbing partners. And my first husband was a climbing partner of Doug's and Yvonne's as well. I met him when I was 19 years old. So the climbing tribe is pretty small. So, that you know.
0: Um and and so so uh, and and uh you two got you as you said earlier you, you, these these sort of the, the development of of this sort of land purchasing and land purchasing for conservation happened sort of organically. So yeah. when when you sort of entered um the 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 scene and 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 began personally engaging in this issue, like what were some of the early big moments um some of the early big accomplishments for you personally in terms of you know acquiring this land and and figuring out how to put this land to to better use?
1: Well, I was there almost from the beginning um, certainly beginning to see the possibilities for this were pretty extraordinary. And you know there wasn't a lot of precedent for this twenty five almost twenty six years ago and then i um after I retired, I took my stock and sold it back to the family and took that money and went out and started buying other land, the first one over in Argentina, which became the first coastal national park of the country so
0: what's the name of that we
1: monte leon mm-hmm.
0: And how did you sort of, what's like just the process of of doing that? I mean, it's just like sort of fascinating. Well, we never bought
1: anything that wasn't private. And you're just Mm -hmm. buying land from a private seller. And just like you do when you buy a house, it's just a little bigger.
0: (laughs) Is it mostly like ranchers down there?
1: No, it varied depending on the territory. Pumaline is... Rainforest, so there wasn't ranching there, but they were all bought from people who, for whatever reason, had acquired these large tracts of land and then wanted to sell it. And so there wasn't a lot of magic to it. It was to get started, you just had to put, in my case, over in Argentina, I asked. The National Park Service. What along the coastline is the most important to preserve, the most in threat? And having understood that, then 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 I went forth, and this is how we selected in that case Monteleon. And uh, within eighteen months, we made the purchase and donated it. As as I said, the first coastal national park of the country.
0: So, so you said that. Um you know, this is fairly straightforward. You're just buying land from landowners, but also, as you said earlier, it's without precedent. So I have to imagine that we're some sort. The scale sort
1: of... is without precedent. Well,
0: so so what were some of like the the challenges and and the hiccups that that you faced uh, along the way?
1: Well, when we first got started, we were famously called the couple who cut Chile in half because Pumalín goes from the border with Argentina to the Pacific, so. The first few years in Chile were rough. There was a lot of suspicion and concern about what we were doing because we weren't cutting the forests. Which, whenever anybody buys forests, it's usually for production, and so that was rocky in, at that time. But then, when the fir- the president ro- uh, left office and the new president arrived, his way of looking at what we were doing was quite different. And from then on until today um we haven't had i mean we always have challenges working in conservation but not that not that kind of general distrust about what we were doing
0: like did you have to do anything proactively to sort of meet with some you know uh, residents or people oh, somehow we always affected oh
1: yeah we always have we always will sure
0: so what are those meetings like
1: well, it depends on who you're having them with. It can be some peop- people who are pro and they want to know how to get involved in this and take advantage of it. And it can be ranchers, neighboring ranchers who are worried about pumas coming back. It can be, uh, oh, the tourism uh, association who is happy about it, but they need they want money. F- to train people and the the art of tourism, it can be there are bazillions of different types mm. of meetings that you have, just depending on which project it is and what the local concerns are and At a government level, we were very specifically going out and telling people um, how you know what we were doing, what was the plan. That we always wanted to donate it back to the country, which was very unusual. So it it took us donating a few parks before people really began to say, "Hey, this is real. This is they're doing what they always said they were going to do." So that's important.
0: And and you said earlier that like government buy-in was important. That in 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 your so Europe- oh, it's essential. Well, and, but it also in your case, it was sort of a change in government that helped facilitate sort of some of these purchases. Um,
1: no, they never – no, that's not true.
0: Okay, it's okay. not that
1: they facilitated facilitated purchases. That never happened okay. and never would. Okay. It is that they would be interested in accepting them mm-hmm. as gifts to the government to form new national parks.
0: And But it was the change in politics that, that enabled that sort of change in thinking.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that was almost 23 years ago. So, you know, that's...
0: But it's been like... Government em-
1: ideas mm-hmm. and so on have changed greatly since then. But yes, in that one case, that's what had to happen. But now that's it's... what did happen.
0: But now it's sort of like embedded in sort of... Uh,
1: well, it's, it's a conversation you, know. you can have with the government and the government is not at all unclear about the motives of Tompkins conservation and they can always choose not to accept a donation of land though that has not happened yet but they always could and um, but it's it's as in all things it's government specific so um, you're always working within that range
0: can you um, like tell me sort of what it takes to after having purchased and and sort of turned over the land for conservation? What work begins at at that point? How do you sort of make areas that might not have been wilderness or, or wild before um, wild restoration? You mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, how does that work?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's again. I hate to be so so. Vague, but it's very site-specific, and it also matters what species have been extincted from that area and need to be brought back. So every area requires its own master plan. But basically, in the large-scale grasslands that we have, you have to eventually take the the livestock off so they just begin to heal themselves. There's not much you can do to, you know, re plant 220,000 acres of Patagonia steppe grassland. So there's that. Uh, In northeastern Argentina, this is where we started rewilding species, extirpated species at a grand scale. And so...
0: What kind of species?
1: Oh, all the way from the smaller ones, peccaries, tapirs, uh, giant anteaters, jaguars... Green children, macaws, pompous deer, uh, maned wolves. So it's a big project.
0: Um, when uh, when your husband died in, in 2015, how did that sort of affect or change or uh, impact sort of the, your your long standing plans to uh, continue preserving and then acquiring and turning over land for conservation?
1: Well, just, I mean, personally, for me, it was an amputation. You know, we we did everything together. We were inseparable for 25 years, so that was one story. But for the teams, it it was rough, but it didn't change anything in terms of what we were going to do or how we would do it and the time in which we would do it. In fact, it probably speeded it up
0: h how, how is that how like how how did that end up speeding well, I think it, up? it
1: kept me sane really to have to turn and get all this done and mm-hmm. it just uh, there wasn't ever a question about what we would continue doing and and maybe even turn up the heat and that's what's happened
0: um and uh, can you uh, so so Can you explain what exactly that um, million dollar, uh, or pardon me, the million acre um, uh, turnover to the government? The government uh, itself contributed something like 4.5 million more acres. Can you describe what that land is, where that land is, and and why it's important for conservation?
1: Well, it's not all contiguous, first of all. Okay. Part of it is 800,000 acres of the Pumaline Park, which was donated with all its. National Park and infrastructure set. And then Patagonia National Park, which is south of Pumalin, which is Patagonia steppe grasslands all the way up to rock and ice and glacial areas. So Pumalin is temperate rainforest, but completely different types. And then some smaller pieces that were connected to uh, the areas that the government put up an additional. Uh, inventory of of acreage. So between the two of us, ten point three million acres.
0: And what's your like hope for the future of of this area? Do Do you want to keep it like untrammeled, or are you hoping that that there's some sort of uh, tourists? It becomes a tourist. Well, attraction yeah, towards? you
1: don't you don't spend tens of millions <laughs> of dollars on infrastructure in these parks, and then hope nobody will show up. Yeah, we want people to get out and visit their national parks and fall in love with nature again and and then develop that ethos through that love to protect them long term. So yes, we're very much pro visitation. Yeah.
0: Are, are there other lands in the region that you're still acquiring?
1: Uh no, we haven't acquired anything since the end of January since we donated everything to the state but uh we're looking at it that's for sure.
0: Uh, so I, I guess like what's what's next for you and, and for Tompkins Conservation?
1: Mhm. Well, we have a lot we have going on. We're developing Amigos de los Parques in Chile, um which is <clears throat> it's it's sort of like the National Park Foundation a bit of it, part of it, here in the U.S., which is to inspire people to get out and visit parks, support parks, and eventually defend parks if they need defending. And then we have uh, an economic promotion uh, for the southern cone, which is Ruta de los Parques, because now there are 17 national parks from Port de Montt down to Cape Horn. So we have some big projects going on. And all of the work to be done with the new government, the government in Chile just changed hands, so uh, lots of work there. And we're involved in marine protection projects now in Chile and Argentina, and rewilding, which is a massive part of our work. So, so the work level hasn't diminished just because we donated those big parks.
0: It's an, and now comes the hard part, sort of thing.
1: No, it's it's the same amount of work. It's it's always um, we like to be busy. We like to move fast and we're very very results driven. So, you know, we have a lot of um, personal pressure we put on ourselves to keep going. Uh.
0: Well. Well. Thank you so much for your time and and for this oh, work. This was this I'm was delighted. really interesting. Okay.
1: Uh, well. Thank you. And I wish you well.
0: Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Christine. And yeah, I thought that was refreshing and it's always interesting to kind of get a sort of outside the foreign policy bubble take on, on some of these issues and philanthropy has such an important role to play in, in world affairs. I've, I've had a few, philanthropists on the the show before. And I always appreciate the perspective they bring to these kinds of conversations and discussions. And now I most certainly got to get myself down to, to Chile and Argentina and check out some of these parks. All
1: right. We'll see you next time. Bye.